All right, well, if you want to take your Bibles, we're going to start in James chapter 1 this morning, and then we're going to make our way to the book of Psalms. But I want to make sure that uh, we tie in what uh, we're looking at this morning with what Harry has been teaching us from the book of James. When we think about the book of James, the, the book of James really represents a form of wisdom literature in the New Testament. It is New Testament wisdom literature. And when I use the term wisdom literature, what I mean by that is that James really uses an approach to teaching that's very similar to what we see in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of certain parts of the Old Testament, in particular the book of Proverbs, about walking in wisdom. The book of James is about walking in wisdom. And Really, wisdom in the Christian faith, wisdom is truth put into practice. So it's more than just knowledge. It is that knowledge put into practice. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the book of James is James chapter 1, verse 5. It's a verse that I pray often. <laughs> Let him who lacks wisdom... That's me. Let him who lacks wisdom ask of God who gives to all men generously. So the book of James is about wisdom. And where does that wisdom come from? Well, the book of James tells us a little bit later in chapter 1 that the wisdom that we need to navigate life, to walk in a way that honors the Lord, the wisdom that we need comes from the Word of God. In fact, in verse 18 of James chapter 1, we see that wisdom comes from above and that it is God who has given His Word by which those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been given life and salvation through the Word of God, the Gospel. And James will continue that thought into verse 21 Receive the word, receive the seed that has been implanted, which is able to save your souls. And then verse 22, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And that verse, verse 22 of James chapter 1, really is the heart of what it means to walk in wisdom. A wise person is one who not only understands and knows truth, but puts that truth into practice. He is not merely a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And we've been spending the last couple of weeks, of course, with Pastor Harry in James chapter 2. And he's going to be back, Lord willing, next week to continue that study. But even when we think about the reality of Abraham's example and Rahab's example as those who lived out their faith, the point James is making is that true believers are characterized not just by professing to know truth, but by actually putting the truth they know into practice. And that practical religion is the fruit that comes from the reality of having the seed of the gospel planted in our hearts, which then bears the fruit of righteousness. Now again, James was not the first person in 
the Bible to use this approach in teaching about what it looks like to live out your Christian faith in a practical way, what it looks like to walk in wisdom. In fact, if we were to, and you don't need to turn there, you're familiar with this passage, but if we were to look at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached by the best preacher who ever preached, the Lord Jesus. We look at Matthew chapter 7, and in Matthew chapter 7, that last part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about how there are two different ways, a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death, two different gates, a narrow gate and a wide gate, and two different trees, a tree that bears good fruit and a tree that bears bad fruit. And then he talks about how there's two different destinies and ends by talking about two different houses. The wise man builds his house on the rock. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. And speaking of the wise man who built his house on the rock, Jesus says that that is true of everyone who builds their life on his words. So James is borrowing the same pattern of the Lord Jesus himself, when he uses this approach to teach through wisdom, sort of the rabbinic Old Testament way of drawing a contrast between wisdom and folly and emphasizing that wisdom is truth applied. Wisdom is truth put into practice. And really, I guess the point that I want to make this morning is I want to emphasize the reality that the Word of God that you have a copy of, that the Word of God, through the power of His Spirit, the Word of God is both precious and powerful because it is the way of wisdom. And I know that you all know that, but James emphasizes that in, again, chapter 1, verse 18 and verses 21 and 22, when he says that we are to be doers of the word. And I want to press that point home this morning, that we are to be doers of the word. I want you to leave today reminded of the reality that the word of God is both precious and powerful. We could look at many passages of scripture to illustrate that point. Of course, James chapter 1 is one of those passages. We could look at, for example, Matthew chapter 13, where the Lord Jesus used the parable of the sowers and the soils, and it was the sower who cast out the seed, and the seed is the word of God. And when it lands on the good soil, you know that it's good soil because of the fruit that is produced. Or we could look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired of God and it is powerful, it is adequate, more than adequate to make the man of God complete. Or we could look at 1 Peter chapter 2, desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby so that you might grow in respect to salvation. Or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, that the word of God is like a sword that pierces into the innermost parts of the human heart and conscience, or even Ephesians 6, 17. In the word that we walk in wisdom. That's James' entire point, and it's a point that's made many other places in Scripture. For us this morning, where I want us to turn and give our attention is to a very familiar passage, the first chapter of the book of Psalms, the first psalm itself, Psalm chapter 
1. Psalm chapter 1. And again, what I think you'll see in Psalm chapter 1 is that what we have here is this approach, again, to wisdom literature that is going to emphasize truth put into practice, and it's going to do so by highlighting these contrasts. We already talked about the fact that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself used these kinds of contrasts in Matthew chapter 7 to make that point. If we were to go through the book of Proverbs, we would see those same kinds of contrasts, the contrast between the wise man and the fool. And the wise man is one who walks in the fear of the Lord. And how do you do that? By walking according to his word. And the fool is one who lives as if there is no God, meaning that he lives as if what God requires, what God expects, and what God has instructed in his word does not apply to him. And so as we think about the book of James and as we think about wanting to honor God in our own choices in everyday life, we find ourselves asking or reiterating the request of James 1.5, asking the Lord for wisdom. And the answer to that prayer request is found in the word of God itself. As we take the truth of this word and put it into practice, we are walking in wisdom. We are proving to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And we are demonstrating the authenticity of the profession of our faith by the fruit of repentance and the fruit of righteousness that's seen in our life. All right, Psalm chapter 1, a very familiar psalm. In fact, here in Cornerstone uh, last fall, we were reading through Psalm chapter 1 together. So I know you're familiar with these words. I want to actually highlight in this text four contrasts, again, kind of in keeping with that typical Old Testament approach to wisdom literature, the contrast between the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. The psalmist here gives us four contrasts that I think are very powerful, and they really underscore both the preciousness and the power of the Word of God, and that's what I'm hoping to impress upon your hearts this morning. Four contrasts. The first contrast there in verses 1 and 2 is what I will call a contrast in direction and delight. A contrast in direction, verse 1, and delight, verse 2. A contrast in direction and delight. Familiar words. How blessed is the man. How happy, how satisfied, how fulfilled is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night." Again, very familiar words, and you notice the progression there in verse 1, from walking to standing to sitting, that those who are influenced by a wicked way of life grow increasingly uh, influenced by that way of life. The contrast in verse 2, the righteous man is one who delights himself in the law of God, the word of 
truth. What I think is really significant in these verses is the connection between direction in verse 1 and delight in verse 2. The reality is that the direction of your life and my life is governed by the things that we delight in. Our passions establish and define our priorities and our pursuits so that the contrast to not walking in the path of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers, the contrast to that is to delight yourself in the word of God. And if we find our delight in his word, then we will not walk in a way that is contrary to him. The connection there between direction and delight, that the patterns and the priorities that define us stem from the heart. And it is when we delight ourselves in the word of God that his word defines who we are. On Tuesday of this week, we had a chapel at the seminary where our guest speaker was a, a man who's been a friend of the seminary for a long time. His name is Dave Parsons, and he started a ministry a number of years ago called Truth Remains, where he has a large collection of really, really old Bibles, and he goes around and gives lectures on the history of the English Bible. And as I heard him talk about those things, I thought, oh, I want to share this with our group in Cornerstone. And I think this is the place to do it, where we're thinking about delighting in the Word of God. Because it is so easy for us, if we're honest, it is so easy for us to take for granted the copy of Scripture that we have in our hands, or the copy of Scripture that we have on our mobile device, or that we find online at you know BibleGateway.com and we decide which version we want to read. Because it's not always been that way. And I know that we know that, but it's helpful sometimes to remind ourselves of the history behind the text of Scripture that you have in front of you, an English translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. It was actually 500 years ago this year, in 1522, that Martin Luther completed his German New Testament, which he was able to translate from the original Greek, which was something that was extraordinary. For most of the Middle Ages, the church, the Roman Catholic Church of Western Europe was entirely tied into the Latin translation called the Latin Vulgate. And it was only after the fall of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, Constantinople fell in 1453, and the result of the rediscovery of biblical Greek and the ability to use the printing press made it possible for the Reformation, to recover the Word of God. It was also around that same time that scholars began to recover the study of biblical Hebrew, so that in the early 1500s, there was a man named Johann Reuchlin who actually published a way to understand biblical Hebrew. And in 1516, I know I'm throwing some history terms at you here, but there was a Dutch guy named 
this is a fun name, Desiderius Erasmus. He was a Dutch scholar who published a Greek New Testament. Five years later, in 1521, Martin Luther is translating that Greek New Testament into German, and it's published the following year in 1522. Okay? Now, this ties into your English Bible because... A little bit before Martin Luther, there was a guy named John Wycliffe. He was a professor at Oxford in the 1300s, and he and his followers translated the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate, which wasn't horrible, but it's like a photocopy of a photocopy, right? You're losing a lot of clarity when you do a translation of a translation. Wycliffe's influence in England was so significant that the Church of Rome in England, the English Roman Catholic Church at the time, outlawed all Bible translation in England. This was at the Synod of Oxford. They passed these laws. They actually dug up Wycliffe's bones and burned them in effigy because they were so mad at him for translating the Bible into English. Because the idea was that the common person isn't sophisticated enough to understand the Bible. And so having the Bible in English, we need to keep it protected. Let's keep it in Latin so that only the scholars who know Latin are able to actually engage with the word of God. In reality, it was a way for Rome to keep control over things and also to keep themselves protected from the obvious corruption that would have been manifest when everyone could read the standard of God's word and compare it to the church. Fast forward to the 16th century. There's a man named William Tyndale who commits his life to translating the word of God from the Greek, not from the Latin, from the Greek into English, but it's illegal. So he has to go on the run and he actually spends most of his professional life running from English authorities who are trying to kill him. He makes his way to the mainland of Europe and he's doing translation work in places like Germany and Belgium, but he's doing it all in hiding because if he gets caught, he's going to be killed. Which is kind of crazy, right? That it's so illegal. In fact, in the 16th century, because of these rules that were established by the Synod of Oxford, it was illegal to possess the Word of God in English or even to speak the Word of God in English, and the penalty was potential death. So William Tyndale is there, and in 1525, just three years after Martin Luther completed his German translation of the New Testament, William Tyndale completes an English translation of the New Testament from the original Greek. And he uses not only that Greek New Testament, but he also uses Luther's German New Testament to kind of help him, especially with certain parts of technical translation notes and other things. Now, for Tyndale's troubles... Uh, That first edition was 1525 when it was published. A revised version was published in 1534. And two years later, Tyndale was executed. He was discovered hiding out in Belgium. He was arrested and he was burned at the stake by order of King Henry VIII. Actually, technically, he wasn't burned at the stake. He was tied to a stake 
and they put gunpowder all around it, and then he was strangled to death, and then it was lit on fire, and he was more or less blown up. Why? What was his great crime? He translated the word of God into English. That was in 1536. If you were to look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, written by John Fox, who also lived in the 16th century, there is a woodcut, kind of an illustration of William Tyndale there tied to the stake with the chain around his neck. And the last words of William Tyndale were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And the Lord answered that prayer. I don't think King Henry VIII was ever saved. And if you know anything about King Henry VIII, he certainly didn't. He was not a doer of the word. Let's just say it that way. (laughs) But three years later, it was actually two years later when it was authorized, but three years later in 1539, King Henry VIII authorized the first translation, English translation of the Bible to be read in all of the churches in England. And that translation was called the Great Bible of 1539. Now, helping William Tyndale with his work were two other men. There was a man named Miles Coverdale, and then there was a man named John Rogers. And uh, Miles Coverdale, so William Tyndale translated the New Testament entirely from Greek, and then he translated the Pentateuch from Hebrew, And he may have translated certain other parts of the Old Testament from the Hebrew language. And again, this was groundbreaking radical stuff because for the first time, we have a translation of the Word of God in English that comes not from the Latin, but from the original Greek and Hebrew. So John Rogers and Miles Coverdale are helping him. Miles Coverdale completes the rest of the Old Testament, not from the Hebrew, but actually from uh, the Latin and German and French sources that he had available to him. But he does complete the rest of the Old Testament. And John Rogers also does some translation work. And John Rogers then takes all of this, and in 1537, the year after William Tyndale was killed... John Rogers publishes the first entire Bible in English that comes mostly from the original languages, but he takes on a pseudonym because he is concerned that he might be killed as well, and he calls it, he publishes this Bible under the pseudonym Thomas Matthew, Thomas Matthew which the name Thomas means twin and Matthew means gift of God. And there's some people who think that he used that name because he wanted to give credit to Tyndale because he was the coworker of Tyndale. So he's like, I'm the twin of the real gift of God who was Tyndale. It is based on Tyndale's work. What that means then is that the first authorized version in England, the Great Bible, was based almost entirely on the work of William Tyndale, the very guy that King Henry VIII, who authorized the Great Bible, had executed just a couple years earlier. Crazy. So after Henry VIII dies, his son Edward VI comes to the throne. Edward is a Protestant, but he only lives for six more years, and then he dies, and then his half-sister comes to the throne, and her name is Mary, and she's known in church history as Bloody Mary because she hates Protestants, and she wants to do everything she can do to kill Protestants. Mary's first execution, her first target, is John Rogers. John Rogers. 
So John Rogers is arrested, and John Rogers is executed as the first Marian martyr because of his great crime of translating the Bible into English. Now, John Rogers had actually gotten married while he was in Germany working with William Tyndale. His wife had 11 children. He and his wife had 11 children. John Rogers' wife was pregnant when John Rogers was arrested, and he didn't see his 11th child until he was being led to execution. He got to see his infant baby as he was led away to be burned at the stake. He was burned at the stake on February 4th, 1555. And his last words were, what I have preached with my lips, I now seal with my blood. Amazing. Okay, so when William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale and John Rogers were doing this work of translation, I came across a statistic, I probably need to go back and verify it, but I came across a a statistic that suggested that at that time in uh, European history in the 16th century, that there were probably about 3 million English speakers in the world. That's really not that many. That's like less than the population of the San Fernando Valley, or roughly the population of the San Fernando Valley. So three million English speakers in the world. And in that sense, English at that time was kind of like a remote island dialect. And yet Tyndale and Rogers were willing to sacrifice their very lives to get the Bible into the language of a group at that time that was an unreached people group. We don't usually think of ourselves as English speakers as having once been an unreached people group, but we were in the 16th century. And you have these translators who gave up everything, including their own lives, to translate the Bible into English. Now, here's what's really cool about their legacy is the work of William Tyndale and John Rogers through the Tyndale New Testament and the Matthew Bible, those translation works became the basis for every subsequent English translation that's ever been done. In fact, after the Great Bible was authorized, about uh, 30 years later in 1668, there was another translation of the Bible that was authorized by Queen Elizabeth called the Bishop's Bible. It was based mostly on Tyndale's work. And then you had a work that was done by some other Protestants called the Geneva Bible. It was based primarily on Tyndale's work. And then you have in 1611, the most famous of all translations, the King James version of the Bible authorized by King James I. And it was primarily based on Tyndale's work. And every modern translation has been based on the King James, which means every modern translation was really based primarily on Tyndale's work. And God in his good providence has allowed English to become the most spoken language in the world. And so the sacrifice of Tyndale and Rogers, still something we benefit from today because we have a copy of the word of God in our own language. Their legacy continues to impact the world for the sake of the word of God. Now, I realize that was a bit of a rabbit trail this morning and you have to sort of forgive me because... 
when it comes to talking about history, I can talk about it for a very long time. And uh, this is true. Whenever my kids hear me start to talk about church history, they kind of roll their eyes because they know that the answer is not going to be short. So... But I just, I wanted to impress upon you because it was impressed on my own heart just this last week in that chapel message from Dave Parsons about the history of the English Bible, how precious it is that we have a copy of the Word of God in our own language. And not just a copy. If you're like me, you have many copies. And if you have a smartphone or a computer, you have access to almost an unlimited number of copies And not just one translation, but numerous translations that have been done in the English language. The question is, okay, I can see from the history that the word of God is precious. And I can see from Psalm 1 that the word of God is precious to those who love him because they delight themselves in the law of the Lord. My question for you this morning is, is the word of God precious for you. And you say, well, yes, it's precious to me. And my question then is, okay, is that evidenced in the daily routine of your life that you clearly delight yourself in the law of the Lord and it has impacted and affected and changed your priorities, your pursuits, your passions, such that your direction is not in the way of the wicked, but it is in the paths of righteousness. Is the word of God precious to you? Well, I have to stop talking about church history or we're never going to get through the other three contrasts here in the book of Psalms. That first contrast is a contrast of direction, and delight. Second contrast here in verses 3 and 4, a contrast in duration and depth. A contrast in duration and depth. The one whose life is marked by the transforming truth of the word of God possesses a duration in terms of impact and a depth in terms of stability that is entirely different than those who are not characterized by a love for God and his word. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. That's a reference to the fact that he prospers in the eyes of the Lord. He flourishes. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. And we've talked about it already a little bit, but what you see here in Psalm 1 is you see this agricultural metaphor that shows up many times later in the scriptures to talk about how the word of God is like a seed that produces fruit or produces a tree in this particular case. Right, So Jesus in Matthew 7 says that the wicked are like a tree that bear bad fruit, the righteous are like a tree that bear good fruit. Matthew 13, the word of God is like a seed 
that in the good soil produces good fruit. James chapter 1, the word of God, receive the word implanted, which saves your souls. And then the fruit of that is to be a doer of the word. And here in Psalm 1, we see that duration and depth. Duration, again, in terms of impact and depth in terms of stability that characterizes the one whose life has been transformed by the saving truth of God's word and who is walking in wisdom by putting the truth of God's word into practice. So I was thinking about these verses. I was thinking about life uh, in Santa Clarita in like July, August. You guys know what it's like, whether you live in Santa Clarita or not, anywhere in this area, when we get all that rain, usually in February, March, and the hillsides all of a sudden become super green. And for like a month in April, May, it's like really pretty. I didn't mean that in a discontented way. I just mean like it, it looks amazing for like a month. And, uh, and then we get into past June gloom. We get into July and August and September and October. And what happens to all of that grass on those hillsides? It dies, right? And yet, especially in certain places, the hillsides are dotted with oak trees and the oak trees remain steadfast, green. In fact, we used to live in a house where we had some oak trees and I discovered that oak trees, they said, oh yeah, oak trees are evergreen, but I discovered that they're actually ever deciduous. They are always dropping leaves. Um, but in any case, the contrast is so evident between the, the yellow dead grass that becomes fuel for our famous wildfires and the oak tree that has been there for decades and decades. And here we have that same kind of illustration and contrast in verses three and four. The person whose life is on the rock of the word of Christ, built on the rock of the word of Christ, whose life is defined by the truth of God's word put into practice, who's walking in the path of wisdom, that person is like a tree that has the duration and depth to endure anything, including no rain from May all the way until the next February, potentially. But the wicked, the wicked are like the dead grasses. They're like the chaff which in a winnowing culture, an agricultural culture, you have the winnowing of the, of the wheat and the chaff flies up and the wind comes along and whoosh, and it's gone. In terms of impact, the wicked leave no lasting mark. They make no dent for eternity. They're like the vapor of Ecclesiastes here and gone. And in terms of depth, the wicked have no grounding. They're not rooted in anything. They have no ability to survive any trial or any tribulation because they are not anchored in the truth of the word of God. Again, I think what we see here in terms of the flourishing of this tree 
is, again, that connection between works and faith that we have learned about in James chapter 2. This is the fruit of a life that has been transformed by the gospel and that is being daily sanctified through the power of the Spirit as he takes that word and applies it to your heart and grows you in grace. Well, there's a third contrast. In verses 5 and 6, a contrast in designation and destiny. A contrast in designation and destiny. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I use that word designation for verse 5, that the wicked are not part of the assembly of the righteous. And we have, again, this idea of these two contrasting groups Right in, in verses 1 and 2, it's two different ways. In verses 3 and 4, it's two different trees or plants. In verses 5 and 6, it's two different assemblies. It's very similar to what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 7. Two different, tree, two different uh, trees, two different gates, two different ways, two different groups, two different houses. There are those who walk in wisdom because their lives are defined by the word of God and those who do not. And the question that Psalm 1 forces us to ask when we get to verse 5 is to ask ourselves, which assembly am I part of? Am I part of the assembly of the righteous or am I part of the assembly of the wicked? And of course, we understand that it is only through God's grace poured out in the gospel through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that we enter into the assembly of the righteous so that we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And that happens through the truth of the gospel. And when that gospel takes root in our hearts, it transforms us by the power of the Spirit. And now we, as those who have been set free from sin and death, are to walk in newness of life. And we see in verse 6 that there's also a contrast in destiny. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Right, I think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, and I keep making connections there because I think there are a lot of connections. When he says to those who are about to enter into eternal judgment, he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But the psalmist here makes the point that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. On Friday, uh, my wife had the opportunity to go to Colorado. She actually left on Thursday, but to go to Colorado to attend the funeral of a friend that was with us at Master's, back when it was college, Master's College. And um, he got sick in December and died uh, relatively unexpectedly in his early 40s. 
And so she went back along with her sister and some other friends to attend the funeral. Um, I was not able to go. I, I stayed home and tried to be a single parent, which um, I can survive in short stints. So I'm very grateful that she has returned. But there's nothing like attending a funeral. And, and this brother in Christ was a believer. He's at home with the Lord, and we rejoice in that. But there's nothing like attending a funeral to remind you of the brevity of life and of the reality of eternity. And what we see here in Psalm chapter 1 is that reminder that those who are prepared for eternity are those whose lives have been transformed by the word of God and they find their delight in his word because they find their delight in him because he has loved them and so they love him. It was interesting. She was telling me about the memorial service that um, he had four kids and they were asked the question, hey, what was your dad's favorite verse? And immediately all four kids were able to say, oh, my dad's favorite verse was Psalm 27, 13, and 14, which is a verse about waiting on the Lord. It's a, it's a great pair of verses. But it was a convicting reality to think, okay, if I was to die, would my kids know what my favorite verse was? Because to have the testimony of your children saying, oh, that's my dad's favorite verse, is another way of them acknowledging, hey, my dad was somebody who delighted in the word of God and who built his life on the word of God and who walked in the wisdom that comes from the word of God. And the question, again, I have for us this morning is, is that true of you? As you think about the preciousness and the power of God's word. Well, all of that brings us to a fourth and final contrast. And you might be saying, well, we're out of verses. Psalm 1 only has six verses, and we're out of verses. Right? Verses 1 and 2, a contrast in direction and delight. In verses 3 and 4, a contrast in duration and depth. In verses 5 and 6, a contrast in designation and destiny. And again, all of this fits with the way in which Hebrew literature thinks about wisdom versus folly. And I think James picks up on all of that as we've already talked about this morning. The fourth contrast is this, a contrast in devotion and doxology. A contrast in devotion and doxology. Doxology, a fancy word for worship. A contrast in devotion and worship. You say, well, where is that in Psalm 1? And I would argue that it's there in the very fact that this psalm has been placed as the first in the Psalter. Because what is the book of Psalms? The book of Psalms is the hymn book of Israel. And we don't know who wrote Psalm 1, but there's an obvious intentionality to the arrangement of these psalms. And this psalm has been placed here first as the pace-setting reminder that those who will worship God and sing His praises and profess to love Him 
are those who first and foremost have been transformed by the gospel, the truth of his word, and who delight themselves in his word because they find their joy in him. You can't authentically sing a hymn or even profess praise to the Lord unless your heart has been transformed by the truth of his word, the saving truth found in Jesus Christ. And unless your life's passion is to know him and to delight yourself in his truth. And I think that's James' entire point in James chapter two. Because to say that you believe in God, great. But is the fabric of your life, the testimony of your routine, the day in, day out reality of Monday through Saturday, does that evidence the authenticity of that profession and that praise? Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls and prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not hearers only. It's precious, it's powerful, and we do well to base our lives and our priorities on what God has revealed in its pages. In the words of Harry Walls, amen? Amen. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. (laughs) Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It is the power to save because your spirit takes the truth of the gospel, which points us to Jesus Christ, and your spirit uses that to open our eyes and to bring life to dead hearts so that we might respond. And the seed of the gospel takes root in our hearts. And as we walk in wisdom by putting that truth into practice, we see that you change our passions and our desires. You give us that duration and stability that the world knows nothing of. You give us the hope of spending eternity with you and the joy of being part of the assembly of the righteous, not because we are worthy, but because you have clothed us in the righteousness of your son. And Lord, you give us the ability to sing your praise and to worship you as even the rest of the book of Psalms makes so abundantly clear. Father, we're grateful and we ask for your grace for the many times that we fall short. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.